It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Our next guest is a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, was named one of the NHL's top 100 players of all times, a six-time Stanley Cup champion, seven if you include his uh, assistant coaching role, the Colorado Avalanche. He's Canada's most decorated Indigenous athlete. And comes from very humble beginnings in Valmarie, Saskatchewan. A fascinating life on and off the ice. Brian Trottier is the author of a new book called All Roads Home, A Life on and Off the Ice. You can see him in person at Word Fest event November 9th in Calgary, the Memorial Park Library. More details at wordfest.com. But joining us to talk about his new book is the aforementioned, the one and only Brian Trottier. Brian, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. My God, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, yeah, I look forward <laughs> to seeing everybody here shortly. Um, look, and there's so much to talk about, obviously. I, I do want to start with your, your friend, your teammate, Mike Bossy. Obviously, the hockey world was, was rocked by his passing recently. And I mean, what can you say about someone who has, you know, had a, such a great career cut short, still one of maybe the, maybe the greatest goal scorer ever, but just somebody who was so widely respected and, and beloved. I mean, what, what can you say about the guy? Well, you know, like his career, his his, uh, his life is tragic. I mean, devastating to me. You know, when you go, you're 66 years old and you pass away way too soon. Yeah. Um, you know, his family. I've I've known Mike. You know, since we were like 20 years old, and uh, you know, we've been friends for a long time. And uh, to lose somebody that close to, as a friend, a teammate, a line mate, we had that kind of success. He probably the reason I had the most success in my career, and I hope I. He feels the same way, but you know we we said I love you to each other so many so many times, and you never take that for granted. But boy, the last time I got a chance to say I love you to Mike, it was uh, you know he was pretty weak, and but it was uh, it was really tough saying goodbye. But I didn't. I told her I'll see you later, and uh, you know it's uh, it's tough to see somebody um, not with us anymore. That's 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 always tough. But somebody like Mike, who uh, Without a doubt, was the purest goal scorer in the history of, of, of hockey. I call it, and mm-hmm. uh, the NHL is one thing, but I have never seen anybody as good as him. You know, and no, no, no disrespect to Wayne or or Mr. Ovechkin or Mario or my buddy Mario. I think Mike is just that kind of a that kind of a guy. He he just knew how to score goals and uh, kind of born to score goals, I guess. But he's a special person, and yeah, I'll miss him. Uh, regarding the book, and it's interesting, there's a foreword uh, written by uh, Jesse Thistle, who's a Métis Cree uh, author and, and historian. And, and, you know, he talks about what it was like for him as a kid growing up and, you know, seeing you as, as a role model, model someone of a, of a similar background. And you talk in the book about, you know, your own experience growing up and you know being called half-breed or, or you know, countering and seeing racism. But for you growing up... I mean, I don't know. Did you have someone like that that could look up to? How conscious were you once you attained some profile that, that you kind of were that role model? Well, first, let me thank Jesse. He did a great job. I was so proud of the forward. And when uh, they brought Jesse's name up and, and uh, you know, he agreed to do the forward and he did such a terrific job. I can't thank him enough. Um, no, we had uh, we had role models. You know, mine was Jean Bellabeau and Gordie Howe and Stan Makita and Later, Gilbert Perot and Bobby Orr, and 
know, the very best of the best. And uh, when you're talking about a young kid who's, you know, remote Saskatchewan, you find out Gordie House from your province. Yeah. And obviously, you know, like uh, when you when you learn Freddie Sasaka Moose is the fastest player my dad had ever seen. He talked about him watching him in Moose Jaws playing for the Canucks. And, and then you hear, like, uh, you watch George Armstrong on TV and, that was dad's favorite player, number 10. I wore number 10 in junior because of it. And then, you know, you see Jim Nielsen. You, these guys are, these guys are super, like, uh, they're, they're, they're pioneers and they're, they're big giants in my world because I figured, man, if they can make it, I can make it too, you know, because they're, they're first nations, they're native blood. And I'm like, wow. And so I held them on a, on, on, on a, on a high to high standard as well. So it was, uh, it was wonderful having uh, role models and having people to aspire to be like because, their confidence, their leadership, all that stuff, you know, getting to the NHL was, was a powerful dream for me. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, kind of used the, used them as inspiration and motivation to a great degree. Yeah. And it was such an interesting journey at, at that time, but in particular, being from, from small town Saskatchewan and, and moving around as well in, in your younger years, I think you were, what, eight years old when you, when you first uh, got a pair of skates? I was actually six when I got my first skates, but we didn't have um, minor hockey in town, so I I learned a lot of my stick handling and shooting out on the creek, uh, right right next to the house. And I had a dog that was kind of the goalie. Uh, Rocky taught him how to be a goalie. He shot uh, pucks at him. He Rowdy was a bit of a cow dog, but he turned into a goal hell of a goalie. But uh, uh, no, it was uh, it was wonderful to be able to, to to learn how to skate, and then. When they brought minor hockey into Valmarie about age eight, that uh, that was that was really exciting because then we got to play in the rink and we got matching uniforms the following year. We we're kind of misfits that first year, but you know we we took it on the chin because we only had about five or six kids my age, but kids would play up and some kids would play down, so we'd have enough guys on the team, maybe eight or nine guys. We got a lot of ice time. I'll tell you, you know, I played defense at the time, so I I was on the ice a lot, you know, rushing the puck and getting back to help the goalie. So. Maybe that's where I got it from. Who knows? I love both ends of the ice. I like scoring. I like being on defense and, you know, breaking up the play. But it was, uh, it was a great time, a lot of developmental time. You know, me and my buddy, Cole Jensen and Bernie Seren, we all thought we were going to the NHL when we were 8, 9, 10 years old. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, and what's interesting, and, you know, I think part of this, too, is inspiring the kids today and, and you know, not giving up because, you know, there were times and, and you know, you, you tried to make the WHL and, and you didn't and, you know, sort of feeling like, was was this ever going to happen? And, you know, you almost quit at times. Um, you know, the perseverance and not giving up on your dreams. You know, how, how about that side of it? Well, it was, uh, it, there was some tough times, obviously, like, like growing up, you know, going, going and playing against older players, uh, you know, in junior hockey was tough and I was small. So five, six, 165 pounds and playing against guys that were six, two, 220 pounds. And there was, it was, it was a rough league at that time. There's lots of fights and lots of bench clearing brawls and line brawls. And yeah. I just couldn't stack up against it. You know, I was getting, I was going to school with a fat lip or a black eye and it was pretty embarrassing. You know, hockey wasn't fun. I wasn't playing much, getting five, six minutes a game on the fourth line. And yeah, I wanted to quit a couple of times. And then Tiger brought me back in, came through a snowstorm, picked me up. It's in the book. And, you know, I wasn't very happy with him at the time, but, uh, you know, I dug my heels in and dad just looked up and he calmly said, you know, you can always come home. And it's just one of those words that I just needed to hear. And that's kind of where the title comes from because yeah. everything I did, I wanted to go home and homesick and calling home and, you know, my roots and I always seemed to be calling so happy whenever I got home and um, it didn't matter if I lived in New York or 
Pittsburgh now. I just, I just love going home. I'm proud of where I'm from and my roots and all that stuff. So, no, it was uh, it was tough. But um, I think through that, you find buddies, you find mentors, and you and uh, yeah, you have to persevere. You got to really want it. And uh, there's times you do want to kind of like throw in the towel. But you know, Tiger dragged me back in, and I thank him to this day because uh, I figured I, I'd just go back to school in Balmerie and play play some hockey and go to go to college, maybe play for the Huskies, hopefully, and play some college hockey, get an education. But uh, oh, hockey, fate, and Tiger had other had other plans, and Dad had the right words, and you know, on to on to the NHL. So. You're lucky to have friends like that and parents like that. Yeah. Well, no, it's like you, you say in the book, Tiger Williams, of course, uh, legendary tough guy, Tiger Williams, and why he was so nice to you. He said he was scared of your dad, right? Yeah. Well, he's <laughs> funny. I think he said that just to shut me up. I think <laughs> I think both of us were on the same path. We both had the same desire. He, he probably had a lot more, but being around Tiger kind of rubbed off on me because he was really good. He practiced with a purpose every day, and... He come to the rink early. We'd stay late, and he taught me how to grapple, how to protect myself. So he was a great, great mentor, a great friend, a good teammate. And I'd say, Tiger, why are you so nice to me? Because I'm afraid of your dad. <laughs> I was afraid of my dad. I understood what he said. He goes, your dad will kick me in the butt if I don't play. I was like, okay, let's go. But it was. I think he just said that to, to shut me up a little bit. But yeah, I mean, but yeah, the support from your parents. You talk about you know guiding you through through your junior years, the, the crazy circumstances of. 1974 and you turning pro we can talk about that but even once you were a pro and making a point of you know, after a big game and rushing to call them on the phone I mean that was such a, a rock for you wasn't it yeah and I think because I was so homesick all the time I think calling home or just you know hearing mom's voice or dad's dad's voice was always calming for me and it just kind of made kind of settled me down again and so sharing a lot of those experiences with them like through junior hockey and seeing dad's cowboy have the stands at a junior game or, you know, hearing their voice after a big hockey game in New York, it just, it just calmed me down and, you know, just took that homesickness away a little bit. You know, they were, they were great. You need, you need that support. You need that, that foundation. And, uh, you know, like I said before, like it wasn't about, you know, finances for them was all about, you know, I think pride and pride of where you come from, pride, you know, don't, don't embarrass my mom and dad sort of thing. So, to share all that with them on on a kind of a game by game basis and get out of those media scrums at the end of a game and you know hustle up to help dad in junior hockey uh, you know to play music after a game and see my buddies come in from from my team and Swift Current to come in and listen to us play my sister was a really good singer dad dad had his family band and it was all kind of fun and I I, I think back and I said it took it took a lot and uh, it was worth it because uh, you know pays dividends you know to kind of stick it out. So, so you turned, you were drafted by the New York Islanders, and of course, part of that Islanders dynasty. But this was a weird situation at the time because the WHA was was coming hard at the NHL. You were very close to joining not the New York Islanders, but the Cincinnati Stingers. Yes, the Cincinnati Stingers were were signing eighteen year olds, and the the NHL was waiting for you know the nineteen twenty year old draft. Yeah. So the uh, World Hockey was signing players at eighteen. They took Dennis Sovchuk out of our league. Uh, you know, and they were trying to get others. They they called me and they said, "Look, we'd like to have you be Cincinnati." I was I was going to turn eighteen in July, and they were calling me in June, and they offered me a contract. You know, fifty thousand dollars for ten years—that's more money than my parents would have seen. Five hundred thousand dollars. So, to my dad's credit, he said, "We got to get an agent. We got to get your representation." We talked to a local attorney. Then we, you know, turned to talk to four or five other agents. You know, Tiger's agent, Herb Pinder, up in Saskatoon, and. 
we chose a guy out of Montreal, a guy named Dave Chaudier, who was representing Dennis Potvin, because I ended up getting drafted by the Islanders, and the Cincinnati Stingers kind of said, hey, if you go into the draft, we're going to yank the contract. And the Stanley Cup, to me, was in, in the NHL. I said, well, okay, well, I don't have any money now. I don't care. You know, For me, I was like, yeah, go ahead and yank the contract. Sure enough, they yanked the contract, but I think the Islanders figured, well, if, since they didn't know that they yanked the contract, and certainly my agent, uh, nor I, was going to tell, so they maybe they used it as leverage, and that's what my agent said they were going to do. And you know, it all worked out. You know that that contract from the Islands yeah. was much higher than certainly the uh, the Cincinnati contract. But the really funny story was on the way down to to meet Bill Torrey and meet my agent and talk about contract. My dad on the plane, you know, first class, two, three tickets. Me, my mom, and dad. And dad says, you know, I think you know whatever they offer us. Remember, the plan is we're going home to think about it. I said, all right, we got a plan. <laughs> we got a plan here. This is great. And then, you know, first class mom and dad get bombed because there are free booze up there. And then they're trying to shake the cobwebs off after doing are coming off the plane. And it was really kind of, kind of neat when Bill Torrey was throwing out numbers like a hundred thousand dollars for three years and, you know, five hundred thousand dollars for, and I'm like, Oh my God. And a free car and the car of your choice and $250,000 signing bonus. My dad goes, where's the pen? I said, what happened to the plan? He goes, Oh, they're crazy to offer you this much money. And, you know, it was probably twice the money that Cincinnati was offering, which was which was real. I, there was guys in the NHL playing, and I think the Islanders took a big a big risk on me and a chance. And I I, I certainly wasn't going to let them down because you know, Dad and Earl Ingerfield wouldn't let me. They would just be mindful, say, you know what, you know, you just, you start you know taking shortcuts now, it's going to you know weave into you. So you better really kind of keep your nose to the grindstone. And and uh, you know, you have that kind of like support again. Those guys kind of making sure that I was held accountable and you could learn to be self-accountable. And, um, no, it was, it was kind of a, kind of a, a fun ride there for, for that Cincinnati, New York Islander <laughs> draft time. Uh, what, I mean, what can you say about what you landed into? I mean, it, you know, it, it's a newish team. It's you know, kind of in the shadow of, you know, the glamor boys on, on Manhattan, but a community that embraced this team and my goodness, legendary coach and Al Arbor, you know, Dennis Popvin, you mentioned Clark Gillies, John Tonelli, Dwayne Sutter, Billy Smith. You can just run down the list. That was, that was something incredible that emerged there. Yeah. And, and you know, to Gallander's credit, you know, we, we, we lost in 78, we lost in 79 to the Rangers, 78 to Toronto. And, uh, the Islanders kept the core group together, uh, the young guys, and, uh, just added like a little piece here with Butch Goring. Kenny Moore came over from the Olympics and, uh, Boom, we kind of hit our stride come playoff time, and chemistry is what chemistry is. And maybe being young and dumb, who knows? But, you know, <laughs> the belief and confidence kind of grew. And, you know, Al was, you know, just a great commander behind the bench. And, uh, you know, Mike Bossy, the purest goal scorer, just, you know, we all get hot, Billy Smith in the net. And, uh, you know, we, we, we get through probably our toughest playoff ever, which was, L.A., Triple Crown line, you know, Buffalo Sabres, French Connection, Boston Bruins, the Big Bad Bruins, very intimidating team. And uh, then we finished off against the Flyers. So, you know, we felt like champions at the end of that playoff, believe me. And we went through the best of the best in the league in order to get it. And and, and I think you have to. We had to learn to climb that ladder of success and, and learn how to win and gain our confidence and earn it, and we did. And uh, it looked good on Al. It looked good on, on the players because, to a man, everybody pulled their weight. And to me, there are, you know, everybody in that team is a Hall of Famer. You know, what stood out to me, I mean, you know, you talk about your dream of making the NHL and playing a shift, and then you play your first shift, you want more. You, you win a Stanley Cup, you want more. Here it is, 83, and the Oilers are, are on the up, and it's from one dynasty to another. You've won four in a row. 
And you write that you were devastated in 1983. Yeah, well, you know, like, it's tough to let go of that feeling yeah. of being a champion. But I think for us, you know, the the, the, the never be satisfied, the, the thing my dad always told me, when you, stop, when you stop wanting, you die. I was like, oh, my God, but you never take things for granted. But it was really, it was really all of us, you know, wanting to keep that feeling of being a champion. And uh, it was wonderful. But uh, these creepy oilers came along, and they had a great team. <laughs> And uh, we were we, we snuck by them in '83. We fell to a degree, but you know we had to earn that one too. But uh, in '84, we got up against them, and to their credit, you know it was their time. Uh, they played well, and uh, you know we passed the torch, so to speak. They're great champions. They're all great guys. We're buds today. It, we didn't like them much in the '80s, but <laughs> okay. you know we had great respect for them. But and uh, we had some great rivalries for sure. Well, you kind of got the last laugh in a way. You sit back and watch them win a bunch of cups, and then <laughs> then you're back with two more. Uh, alongside it, my God, I mean, another uh, amazing group. I don't know if we call the Penguins of the, those two years a dynasty, but, man, they were close to that. Well, when you look at that team and you look at Mario, Ronnie Francis, Joey Mullen, uh, Larry Murphy, uh, just a whole crew of Hall of Famers. Paul Coffey was on that team. Um, you know, yeah, you got Yager, Mark Recchi was on that team, Hall of Famer. And, uh, you know, it, it's just loaded with talent. And then uh, Craig Patrick put together another group that believed in itself, and we had a great coach and Bob Johnson and Scotty Bowman. We lost we lost Bob after the first year to yeah. to a horrible brain cancer, but um, you know we overcame. Scotty was fantastic, you know, dedicating the season to Bob, and I think the guys rallied. And uh, boom, Mario played beyond Marioism because he was just uh, you know he had a bad back, and he's still our best player on the ice and. Um, you know, the team was spectacular. Tommy Barrasso and that, and, uh, you know, the city of Pittsburgh, you know, they, they embraced us. We got two great championships there. And I got to, I got to party with that town. They don't have to celebrate a championship, but I, I, I love my team. I love, I love the, 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 the bond that we share together, obviously. Yeah. I tell you, Brian, we could probably go on, or I could go on asking about this for hours. we got to leave it there, unfortunately. Uh, the book is called All Roads Home, A Life On and Off the Ice. It's available now. We mentioned that you're going to be in Calgary November 9th, uh, an event for WordFest at the Memorial Park Library, wordfest.com for more details. Congratulations on the book, Brian, and obviously congrats on an amazing career. And uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to being in Calgary. All the Talk best. To you later. There you go. The one and only Brian Trottier, Hall of Famer, six-time Stanley Cup champ. Seven, of course, was an assistant coach of the Colorado Avalanche in their uh, first cup, or second cup, I guess it was. And, uh, yeah, in the Hockey Hall of Fame, named one of the NHL's top 100 players of all time and uh, Canada's most decorated Indigenous athletes. What a remarkable story. Halloween is Monday. And perhaps in the lead-up to Halloween this year, you've heard some variation of this. A word of warning this Halloween from Golden Valley Police to parents of trick-or-treaters. Police are alerting residents about so-called rainbow fentanyl, which is a powerful opioid drug that's made to look like candy. Ahead of Halloween, Attorney General Ashley Moody is warning parents about the dangers of rainbow fentanyl. The deadly drug is brightly colored and resembles candy. Officials are not clear if drug dealers are targeting children with these pills. Many times people uh, ingest this and have no idea that's what they're ingesting, and it is so potent, so deadly. Halloween uh, will have a, have a, a certainly take on a new meaning this year in terms of scary. 
Hi, I'm Senator Shelley Moore Capito, and I come to you today not only as a U.S. Senator, but as a fellow American concerned about the health of our nation's youth. This Halloween, the powerful drug cartels are coming after your kids, your neighbors, your students, your family members, and your friends. Wow, okay, so some of this has been a little more over the top than others. Some elements are new and specific to this year, but ultimately, you know, this is a theme that keeps coming up every year at Halloween, the myth of the contaminated, the dangerous candy. This has been around for a long time, maybe longer than you realize. Our next guest has been tracking reports of contaminated treats for about 40 years now, and the data goes back even much further. Uh, Joel Best, the sociology professor at the University of Delaware, Read more at his website, joelbest.net, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hello, well, thank you very much. So what do you make of what we're seeing this year, uh, the fentanyl, the drug contamination, the cartels? It's kind of a a new spin on all of this, isn't it? Yeah, this is very unusual. Um, The the idea that people uh, tamper with treats on Halloween has been around... uh, you know, for 70 years. And uh, the uh, there's there's really next to no evidence for this. I've tracked press coverage going back to 1958, and I can't find a single uh, report, authenticated report, of a child being killed or seriously hurt by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. Now, what's happened this year is uh, uh, that... Uh, People have tied a, a uh, completely unrelated uh, press release from the Drug Enforcement Administration talking about the existence of this rainbow fentanyl, and they connected it to fears of Halloween. And, you know, this is a, a uh, very implausible claim. Right. So what's what's behind all of this, then? If there's not really any examples, or very few examples of anything like this, where, where does this come from now? Well, uh, Halloween is supposed to be scary. And uh, uh, we uh, mostly have stopped believing in ghosts and goblins, but we believe in criminals. And so uh, we tell ourselves stories about uh, criminals misbehaving on Halloween. Um, yeah, and that's really all there is to it. This is not the media's fault. Uh, the media uh, do not uh, publicize this very much because there's nothing to publish. Uh, you know, this is basically folklore. It's something that we tell one another, and we all know it's true, even though there's really no evidence for it. Is, is some of this at some level just, you know, this kind of fear of strangers that maybe we grow up with and as parents we carry that over like if i was sending my kid just to go randomly have dinner at at someone's house in the neighborhood someone who i didn't know that would seem weird to me and so once a year we send our kids out they're going door to door getting things from strangers right yeah i i think that's right and and uh you know if you think about it this is this is the greatest thing in the world to be afraid of because uh you're imagining that someplace down the block is a person who poisons little children at random, but they're so tightly wrapped, they only do it one night a year. And so you can control this. Um, If if you want, you can say, hey, we can't go trick-or-treating, or I have to go with you, or we're only going to go to the houses of people we know, or we're going to go trick-or-treating in the mall, or we're going to trunk-or-treat in the church parking lot, uh, or I have to inspect all the treats, or, you know, whatever you want to do. 
And November 1st, you look around the breakfast table and everybody's still there and you can say, well, we don't have to worry about that for another 364 days. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> what kind of villainy is that? Yeah, no kidding. What are the consequences of getting too caught up in all of this? If at the end of the day, all that happens is my kid comes home, I, I look through the candy, things look okay, and, and that's it. I guess no harm, no foul. But at a broader level or a societal level, is, is there some, some downside to getting too caught up in this? Yeah, I, I think that it's uh, not great to be thinking that someplace down the block, uh, one of your neighbors is a murderer. You know, right. sure. There's that. It, you know, it 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 uh, doesn't do anything for our sense of community. Well, that's true. Um, but just yeah, that that you know, succumbing to that fear, right, or or wanting to believe the worst. Yeah, I mean, those mm-hmm. those aren't productive qualities, I suppose. No, no, no. I'm I'm very surprised. Has has the uh, Rainbow Fentanyl story uh, uh, reached Canada? I mean, I, I, well, you know, I think by extension, I because we, we get so much media coverage from the United States, yeah. I, I think, you know, it sort of it sort of blends in. So sometimes it's hard to, to separate the two and it maybe it just all kind of blurs together in people's minds. They're not sure if they were watching a U.S. station where they saw the story, a local station. Sure. So, yeah, those those things tend to spill over. Yeah, absolutely. OK. Yeah. Um, what, what have we seen over the years? I know, I know, I remember, you know, the razor blades, that was a big thing. Um, more recently we've yeah. seen, you know, drug scares, whether it's marijuana gummies yeah. or, or fentanyl. What, what else have we seen over the years? Well, um, you know, the, if there's a big crime story in September, a lot of times it will be linked to Halloween. So the Tylenol poisonings where somebody oh, tampered right. with, uh, uh, you know, pill containers in a store, um, and and seven people died from that. That occurred in September, and that that led to a lot of speculation that people had to be extra careful on Halloween. Uh, after nine eleven uh, in two thousand one, there were a lot of stories that terrorists were going to hand out uh, dangerous treats to children. And of course, nothing came of any of that. Uh, and as you say, in the last uh, few years, uh, it's uh, uh, you know. Uh, Recreational marijuana has been legalized in some states. Uh, there have been warnings that uh, THC-infused candy might be handed out. Uh, when I talk to people about this, the people that uh, have a lot of experience with recreational marijuana laugh because they say, you know, do you have any idea how expensive that stuff is? <laughs> exactly. We're not going to give it away. No kidding. Uh, so yeah. this probably isn't going away, and maybe next year or year after it'll be something different, but it's it's a trend that's, that's here to stay. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, you know, I've been I've been giving interviews like this for thirty five years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a lesson in humility. You think you're getting the word out, but but uh, uh, next year there will be uh, reporters calling me uh, wanting to talk, and it's you know the and I and I'll update my research this year, and I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I uh, presume that I will not have uh, a, a big body count this year. I, I never have in the past. Uh, so the results will be the same, but the story will live on. Indeed it will. Well, much more on all of that research as mentioned at joelbest.net. Joel, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All the best. Uh, you go, that's uh, Joel Best, a sociologist at the University of Delaware, been tracking these reports since 1983, as he says, data that goes all the way back to the late 50s. You might find an isolated incident here or there, something weird that happened, but, um, you know, in terms of serious harm befalling children, you know, any kind of meaningful or serious trend of any of this stuff just isn't there.
and yet it keeps coming up every year. So here it is this year. The fentanyl's the big thing. Probably not something you need to worry too much about. Like I said earlier, you know, maybe the biggest risk to kids on Halloween is not what your neighbor's handing out. It's your neighbor coming home or your neighbor going off somewhere. Like the one thing that statistically is associated with Halloween that's a risk to kids are car versus pedestrian situations. You have a lot of kids out running around in the streets, you know, people still going about whatever they're doing or going off to parties or whatever it is. I mean, it is a Monday this year. Right, and not the kids are getting mowed down in in huge numbers, but there is a statistical uh, increase, a statistically significant increase in those kinds of collisions on Halloween. So maybe we're a little too focused on on things that aren't really threats, and we're kind of maybe blind to those that are. As we're just talking about Ottawa's former police chief uh, on the stand today, this public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. And, and, you know, to a large extent, I think his testimony, the testimony of other officials has helped us understand uh, decisions that were made early on that proved to be consequential in terms of how entrenched this protest became. So, yes, I think it's fair to wonder, could more have been done sooner and differently? Uh, to have prevented the convoy protests, the occupation of Ottawa, uh, from becoming what it did. But ultimately, that's not the point of this exercise. The point of this exercise is to try to get to the bottom of an important question. Was the government justified in using the Emergencies Act? Now, there's a connection, obviously. Maybe if this had been better handled, it all would have been a moot point. But that doesn't really answer the question. Was the use of the Emergencies Act justified under the circumstances, however we got there? Now, there's still a lot more to come at this inquiry, including, obviously, the uh, testimony from the prime minister and other federal officials. Based on what we heard so far, what is the evidence telling us? I think a fair reading of what's been presented so far is that there is a lot of question as to whether it was justified. Certainly the evidence we've seen, I I do think, casts doubt on the government's decision. Well, joining us for some further thoughts, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, John Iveson, Ottawa-based political columnist for the National Post, Ottawa Bureau Chief, Post Media, and uh, author of the book Trudeau, The Education of a Prime Minister. John, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, So what's your sense so far in terms of what's been presented that speaks directly to that question about whether the Emergencies Act was justified? Well, we're we're kind of one third of the way through, as I put it. We're at the end of the, of the first period, yeah. And you know, the government goalie is getting hammered right now because not too much of the testimony has backed up this crucial point. I mean, you you're right. There's a lot of noise going on. There's a lot of finger pointing and blame game being played, which is not. While it's pertinent, it's not core the reason the thing was called in the first place. Yeah. And that's essentially was the Emergencies Act necessary to clear the streets of Ottawa on February 18th. Right. And um, I suppose that gets to the point of what is the legal threshold of the, of the Emergencies Act? And most of us, I think, have, have looked at the Act and thought, 
Well, there has to be a, a clear and present threat to the sovereignty and security of Canada that other legislation can't handle. And I think under that, if, you, if that was your the bar, and the government is not going to cross it, because we've heard from various police officers, including this week uh, Robert Bernay, who was in charge of the plan that actually worked at the end of the day for Ottawa Police Services, and he said... It didn't have much impact on my plan. We were we were going to go ahead anyway. Um, you know, he said it, it was helpful. Anything that contributes to mission success is a benefit. When he was asked was the act necessary, he kind of fudged because he didn't want to make headlines, I think. And he basically said, um, you know, it's hard for me to say because I didn't get to do it without the, the Emergencies Act. But we heard time and time again from, from the OPP, um, the RCMP, Chief Brenda Lucky, all of them said there were still tools that the, that the police had not used. They had a plan in place, they had tow trucks in place, and they were going to go ahead whether the Emergencies Act was called or not, Which, which, in which case, the government doesn't meet the bar. Now, can I just add that the final caveat, though, is that the government, I don't think, is going to try and meet that bar. I think it's going to argue that if you look further down the Act, it says that invocation is justified if the government believes on reasonable grounds that a public welfare emergency exists. And if the judge takes as flexible a view as the government, then they may not come off too badly. There was, there was some back and forth around the point about the tow trucks this week, and Inspector Bernier had said there was a deal in place to have some tow trucks, Then a government lawyer said, well, looks like that deal fell through. And he had said, well, that's news to me. So I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, d- did we get some resolution to that question? Do we know? Well, the, the, the question was then put to uh, Thomas Carrick, who was the uh, commissioner of the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, the next day. And he said, while this there was a, a, something that break down um, and the Emergencies Act would, al- would have allowed us to compel those truck drivers. We didn't need to compel them because they were willing to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the tow trucks were there regardless. But that is not, uh, I don't think, proven beyond reasonable doubt. There are there is a lot of conflicting testimony out there. You mentioned some of the noise of this hearing, and I mean... You know, it would be understandable at some level, I guess, if we decided to have a public inquiry about the protests and what happened, why did it happen, who was involved, all of that. But that's not what this is, right? As we alluded to, this is about addressing a very specific question. So as a lot of what we've heard, even what we've heard today or or this week, I mean, how much of it has been kind of irrelevant? Well, I don't don't think it's irrelevant because it's all relevant to to the point of how serious a threat to public safety was this was this convoy mm-hmm. so it all plays into that but of course there are various um, subplots and dramas and today Peter Slowly the former police, Ottawa Police Services Chief was up quite dramatic testimony he was moved to tears at one point and he essentially said it was it was too cold and too much was asked of the Ottawa Police Service um, you know he characterised the the um, the protest is an unruly and unlawful party. Um, essentially, I think a whole bunch of people have been trying to blame him for this, and you know he, sh- he shares his. He should take his share of the blame because he he was ultimately responsible for allowing the the convoy to embed itself on Parliament Hill. And once it was there, um, you know they weren't going anywhere, and it was going to take a couple of thousand police officers to get rid of them, as it turned out. But um, you know 
he claims that the intelligence just wasn't there. Nothing, nobody should have known or could have known that this was going to turn into what it turned into, despite the fact that earlier testimony we heard from the Hotels Association, they quite clearly told the police that the organisers were trying to um, book up somewhere between ten and 15,000 beds in the city right. for a period of weeks on end. So it clearly, in their eyes, was not going to be just a, a weekend event, which is what Soli thought it was going to be. So there's, there, are, there is this kind of drama, how did we get here? Um, you know, it's interesting... And it's it is quite you know moving and dramatic, and a lot of people were you know deeply involved in this for weeks on end in in Ottawa. But at the end of the day, as you point out, that is not what we're here for. Right. We did get this odd little sideshow this week. I'm not sure what's going on with Doug Ford's, uh, why he's so hell-bent on not testifying. I mean, how big a distraction has <laughs> that become? And I don't know, what do you make of it? Well, you know, the testimony we have heard from people like um, Tim Watson, the former mayor or the mayor, current mayor, he's, he's, he's leaving the post soon, um, in Ottawa, he, he said, you know, Ford has kept telling him he was, he was there whenever he needed him and then he never was. And uh, Justin Trudeau privately said that Ford was hiding. And it looks like Ford is hiding. I mean, he doesn't want to get involved in this. He doesn't want to share any of the blame. It looks like the testimony suggests that the province was not very helpful when, when the municipality went looking for help. Um, the Solicitor General at the time was called Sylvie Jones. She's also been summoned and she's also claiming parliamentary privilege. Um, she, when she was approached to, to get involved by Jim Watson, said it's an issue for law enforcement and just leave it to the police chiefs. So I think that the reason they don't want to testifies because they probably won't come out of it very well. They're falling back on the the uh, parliamentary privilege rubric, which they're on sound ground because I think that um, you know it's it's written into various laws that you cannot call a sitting MPP while the legislature is sitting. Then you know if, if you could do that, MPs and MPPs will be in court the whole time and never voting. Yeah. So this is a, a legitimate principle, but. I do think that Doug Ford is abusing it because there are other principles involved, namely the rule of law and accountability. So looking forward, um, you know, apparently some, some of this evidence from CSIS is going to be heard behind closed doors. So that, that seems interesting and significant. But, you know, there, there are federal officials, including the prime minister himself, who are going to take the stand here. What, what are you uh, watching for, most looking forward to? Well, we know some of what CSIS is likely to say because... Um, the various intelligence reports filtered down to to the OPP. Um, we've had OPP uh, senior officers already testifying that that CSIS and the RCMP's INSET intelligence unit, um, both of them had looked at the convoy and both of them had concluded that there was no great, great or grave threat to national security. So whatever CSIS says, I mean, that's essentially it's in private because they don't want to presumably uncover their sources. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like it will be testimony that uh, changes the way that the, the judge perceives things. Um, well, we can never say that because we don't know what, it, what, what they're going to say, but sure. we, we do have some, some warning of what, uh, what is coming down. And it, it looks like they're essentially going to say this was not the kind of threat that would justify the Emergencies Act being invoked.
which I guess is convenient to to the government's narrative. But ultimately, the judge will see this and hear this, and and will see his his final yeah. Report. I mean, we have, we have to try, we have to trust in the judge. I mean, yeah. that they, there are um, there are cabinet confidences being waived for you know very rarely are they waived in all the inquiries we've already had in Canada. I think only four inquiries have had access to cabinet confidences, and they are being made available to the judge and. You know, again, we've got uh, in-camera testimony from the spy agency. So, you know, at the end of the day, he's the only person who's hearing all the testimony, and we have, we do have to rely on his his uh, experience and professionalism to to come up with the right answer. Yeah, yeah fair point. All right, much more uh, nationalpost.com. John, thanks for joining us here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. John Addison, uh, political columnist for the National Post, nationalpost.com. You can read his piece uh, from uh, yesterday. Uh, in which he says, in in his words, he's not convinced uh, so far, based on what we've heard, that the uh, use of the act was justified. That it's becoming clear, he says, that the government overreached. Welcome back. The debate around immigration in this country has really changed. And even though maybe specific policies vary, there seems to be real consensus among the major parties that immigration benefits Canada. And we should increase immigration numbers. Canada's population needs to grow. Uh, lest our productivity suffer. Unless we have to raise taxes massively on those still working. Uh, to cover the bill of uh, all of those Canadians who will have retired. So yes, there's an economic imperative. Maybe even an urgency to increasing immigration. And so it's not a coincidence. Maybe that public opinion has shifted considerably. Now, coming up in in a few days, uh, sometime next week, the federal government's expected to release its uh, new multi-year immigration targets. And and certainly the liberals have been aggressive in raising immigration numbers from about 300,000 a year to just over 400,000 a year. And we'll see what uh, they're envisioning in the years ahead. Uh, This all coincides with the release of the latest annual survey from the Environics Institute for Survey Research, environicsinstitute.org, asking Canadians the question, questions that they've been asking for 45 years, going all the way back to 1977. Back then, uh, 35% supported increases in immigration. Now, it's double, just under double, 69%. So quite a turnaround over a generation or a couple of generations, maybe you could argue. And and the, the public opinion has indeed shifted. And I guess it's interesting to look at why that is in addition to what these numbers tell us. Anyway, joining us for more, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Keith Newman, a senior associate at the Environics Institute. Keith, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's been 45 years uh, that your institute has been surveying Canadians uh, on these questions, and we've seen some pretty massive changes over that time, haven't we? Well, we have. Um, You know, we started in the late 70s asking Canadians questions, uh, uh, some key questions about immigration levels and so forth. Uh, And, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, I think most most Canadians generally felt that uh, the country was taking too many immigrants. Um, but in sometime in the 90s and uh, into the 21st century, it, it really kind of flipped. And uh, now we consistently see that a majority of Canadians uh, reject the idea that immigration levels are too high. And uh, we do these surveys every year. And uh, over the past year, uh, that level of support has actually inched upwards and is now as high as we've ever recorded. 
Yes, yeah, 69% of Canadians are in support of current levels of immigration. And uh, so that, as you said, so that's the highest level ever recorded in this survey. Yeah, and I would just I would just uh, point out that the what they're what they what the sixty nine percent refers to is the proportion of Canadians that disagree with the statement that immigration levels are too high. Right. So that that proportion includes not only people who think the current levels are are okay, but may even want higher levels. Well, and that's another question here, right? That Canada needs more immigrants to increase its population. That might have been mm-hmm. a controversial statement a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Not not so much anymore. Well, I think that there is a broader recognition uh, over the last couple of years that uh, that immigration is actually pretty pretty important to the economy, uh, and that we need we need immigrants and more immigrants to power the economy, um, and also simply to keep the population growing. <clears throat> the, the current statistics from Stats Canada indicate that almost all of the population growth is now coming from immigration. Um, and I think part of what this is also telling us, and, and this is, goes back to some of the research we've been doing, is that uh, it used to be years ago that there was a, a concern that uh, immigrants might take jobs away from other Canadians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that concern has almost disappeared. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people know that uh, the country is currently experiencing a labor sor- shortage uh, and might even be experiencing that directly uh, when they can't get uh, uh, contractors to work on their homes or other sorts of services. And so in that context, I think that the, you know, concerns about uh, immigrants taking jobs uh, really isn't an issue anymore. Well, as we look across the country, I mean, this is kind of the big national snapshot of how Canadians feel, but do we see differences, regional differences or demographic differences here? You know, there are some differences. And, and you know, I, I should point out that on most of our questions, it's not that everybody agrees. Right. Um, but on many of these questions, there's clear majority view. Um, and that has either been stable or I- I- increasing over the past uh, couple of years. And, you know, there are some regional differences. They're not dramatic. Uh, I think, uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, people in the prairies, uh, Alberta in particular, uh, you know, uh, a bit less supportive uh, of immigration and, and refugees and, and some more concerns, but not dramatically so. It's a matter of degree. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you look at Quebec, for instance, uh, where they just had an election where immigration uh, was ostensibly one of the election issues, um, among Quebecers generally and even among Francophones, <clears throat> uh, their views don't really differ that much from other Canadians. So, uh, so region is not a big issue. Uh, uh, people with higher levels of education and income, you know, tend to be a bit more supportive. Uh, uh, that's always been the case, and it's not a big difference. Um, and uh, even even if we look at people based on their time in Canada, whether they're first generation or immigrants, second generation, or 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 later or third plus, um, we don't see a lot of differences there either. Uh, you know, I think I think it's it's uh, uh, useful to point out that um, uh, support for immigration and refugees is not being driven by the fact that we have more first generation Canadians coming to the country every year <clears throat> because their views are not necessarily that different from people that have been here a long time. The biggest difference in attitudes on this topic is really about uh, uh, federal party support, uh, political partisanship, at least at the federal level. Um, and that's been the case for a number of years, and that has kind of widened a bit uh, in the past year, for instance. Uh, so those who would support the federal 
liberal NDP or Green parties are increasingly becoming more, I guess, strongly supportive of immigrants and refugees and integration and so forth. Those who support the federal Conservative Party, less so, uh, although they're not becoming less so than before, they're just uh, stable while the other parties are moving. Well, and, and yeah, I don't want to build off that to talk about what's changed because, you know, to some extent, I guess political parties kind of reflect public opinion. You alluded mm-hmm. to it earlier. There's there's obviously more of an economic consideration uh, that, that comes mm-hmm. with, with immigration. So that's mm-hmm. changed. Perhaps we mm-hmm. could just say that maybe Canada is a more tolerant country now. I mean, I, I don't know. How do we explain these these changes? Well, uh, I think that part of it is driven by the economic reality of, you know, we need immigrants to fill jobs and keep the economy going and uh, increase the population. Um, You know, a country has become increasingly more diverse over time. Um, So I think that uh, 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 I think uh, Canadians are becoming more, what's the word? They're they're getting more experience and maybe coming to realize or accept the fact that that's what Canada is. Again, not everybody feels that way. One of our other key questions is asking whether people are concerned about the integration of newcomers, uh, uh, whether there are too many immigrants not adopting Canadian values. Um, and, you know, the population is evenly divided on this. This is, this, you know, of the concerns about immigration and so forth, it's around integration um, and potential sort of cultural issues where uh, uh, that continues to be, uh, uh, the, the most sensitive aspect of this, and that that hasn't really changed much in the last few years. Uh, uh, roughly half the population doesn't have an issue with it, and the other half does. So that and that that so that remains a potential concern that many people have. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, you know, it, it certainly seems like we've seen these levels going up in a straight line, but that's that's not a guarantee that it's going to continue to do that. No, and we, we wouldn't suggest that it is. I think every year when we do the survey, uh, we're not sure what we're going to find. I mean, you know, there are external events that are always happening, uh, whether it's a recession, a pandemic, uh, uh, you know, global refugee flows, um, uh, inflation, uh, housing issues and potential impacts of immigrants uh, uh, taking up housing. Um, you know, we're, yes, there's no guarantee. And we're uh, uh, every year we ask the questions and we wait to see what the results are. But it is worth, uh, I guess, uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, we've been doing this every year for a long time. And there have been many events happening over the past 10 or 20 years, like the major financial recession of 2008, 2009. And these things don't seem to be affecting sort of the overall sentiment that Canadians have about this issue. Um, So, yes, things could change. But uh, as we go over time, it feels like it's getting a little more baked in. um, And what might change that, I guess, remains to be seen. Much more, as mentioned, at environonicsinstitute.org. Keith, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you as well. Take care. You too. That's Keith Newman, Senior Associate at the Environics Institute. So the latest uh, numbers from the Institute on how Canadians feel about immigration and quite a change over the last 45 years. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.